Galatians 2.21 says this, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we pray now, Father, that you would speak to us as we come to you to receive the food of your word this morning. Jesus, you said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so I pray that your spirit would be here and speak deeply to our hearts. I pray that we would receive the the good food of your word and be changed today. In Jesus' name, amen. If I ask you the question, don't answer out loud, okay? If If I ask you the question, are you righteous, how would you respond? I said don't answer out loud. Some may stumble around for the right answer, right? They may say, well, I'm trying, or I'm doing better than I used to do, or uh, for sneaky, we'll say, well, we'll think in our mind, well, I I think I'm doing better than this person, or quite frankly, we might say it's been a tough week, or maybe someone would just say, no, I'm not righteous. Some might boast wrongly boast, there's a right way to boast about this, but some might boast, yes, of course. Still others may recoil at the idea because their idea of a righteous person is someone who doesn't know how to have a good time and and usually wants to make sure other people don't either. And we want to, none of us want to be around that kind of person. This verse here in Chapter 2, verse 21, is the, gets to the central theme of the book of Galatians. And in the book of Galatians, Paul gets to the heart of the gospel, which is the truth that we are justified by faith in Christ, which is the teaching about how we are made righteous in God's sight. This truth, justification by faith, was the flashpoint of the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. How can a sinful person be made right with God. So it's not surprising that Martin Luther said of this truth, it is the teaching upon which the church stands and falls. But he went further. He said it's not not just the church generally, but it is the teaching upon which you and I stand and fall. One of the other prominent reformers in the 1500s, John Calvin said, justification by faith is the hinge upon which true religion turns. This truth answers the all-important question for you and I, how do I get right with God? Or it answers the question, am I righteous in light of the gospel? But oftentimes, quite frankly, we aren't nearly as concerned about, being, about what God thinks as we are about what other people think. There was a uh, theologian in the 20th century, very, very important during the time, um, his name is J. Gresham Machen, he said this, he said, there are those who are concerned with the question of their standing before man, but never with the question of their standing before God. There are those who are interested in what people say, but not in what God says. The the beginning of true nobility comes when a person 
ceases to be interested in the judgment of man and becomes interested in the judgment of God. What the Bible says about justification by faith is relevant for all of us. And here's what God wants you to know today. There is no person so bad, no person so bad, so sinful, so darkened by and stained by sin that they cannot be justified by God. Not one person. And there is nobody so good that he doesn't need to be justified by God. No one's so bad, right? God's arm is not so short. He can't pull up the worst person in the world, the most sinful, the most depraved. And no one is good in the sense before God that they don't need his justifying grace. I spoke with someone this week, and he described his relationship with God And I think a lot of people can relate with this. He described his relationship with God as one of climbing a ladder. And he would climb up two rungs, and God would move up three. And he would climb up two rungs, and God would move up three. And he could never get to God. He was never quite good enough. Many people feel this way, and quite honestly, for good reason. This reveals our fundamental problem. Our biggest problem is that God is good and righteous and that we in ourselves are not. That's our biggest problem. Paul says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, for in it, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. And the righteous will live by faith. We need righteousness And we don't have it. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 says this. None is righteous. No, not one. And then verse 12 says, No one does good, not even one. Now don't get offended by this, okay? Some are like, wait a second, people do good things. And on a horizontal plane, that's true, right? People do things that are nice and kind and generous and etc., But when we bring our goodness and our righteousness to the bar of God's perfect standard, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who, no one does good, not even one. So you and I have a righteousness deficit. In fact, in ourselves, we are bankrupt when it comes to righteousness. And yet God, to be right with God, we need to be righteous. And so this verse comes to our aid. It comes to the rescue. This verse tells us that the good news of the gospel says that what God requires, namely righteousness, he provides. What God requires of us in terms of righteousness, he provides. And so I want to look at this verse and consider three things. First, that Jesus earned righteousness for us. Second, that we never, ever, ever move beyond this gift. And third, this gift, when it goes beyond just our brains and gets into our blood veins, it brings about wonderful and powerful effects in our lives. 
So first, Jesus earned righteousness through his death. Paul says this in our verse, in verse 21. Paul says, if righteousness is through the law, then Jesus Christ died for no purpose. So we cannot gain righteousness through law-keeping. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, most famously, he came up with this great short poem, and the opening line says this, Run, John, run, the law commands, but it gives us neither feet nor hands. And that's what the law does. It, It gives us commands, and yet it doesn't give us the power to obey. We cannot be righteous in God's sight through law-keeping. No matter how diligent we are, no matter how disciplined we are, no matter how great our willpower is, we can't do it. So Paul directs us away from our own efforts to Christ, who earned righteousness for us through his death. Now, I don't know about you, but oftentimes, most often when I think of the death of Jesus, I think, mainly, maybe even exclusively in terms of forgiveness and pardon, where he takes away our sins. And I I love that. Of course, that's massively important, right? He's removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. But what if the death of Jesus only took away our sins? You might say, only? Trust me, I'm not, I'm not going to say something blasphemous here, okay? What if it only took away our sins? Well, we would be innocent before God, but we would not be righteous. We would have our sins removed. We would be back in a place of innocence, as it were, but we would not be righteous in God's sight. The law has negative consequences, curses for lawbreakers, which Jesus paid when he died on the cross to purchase our pardon and take away our sins. But the law also has, excuse me, requires positive obedience to its commands and speaks enormous blessing on all those who keep it. Now, we've we've already seen that we haven't kept it. Not at all. But Jesus did perfectly. There's this interesting... um, there's this interest, interesting account in Matthew chapter 3 where Jesus uh, comes to John the Baptist. John the Baptist has come on the scene and he pronounces or announces a baptism of repentance and people start flocking to him. And he's baptizing hundreds, maybe even thousands of people in the Jordan River. And Jesus comes to John. And as you can imagine, John's like, whoa, 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 wait a second. What are you doing? I dare not baptize you. I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. What are you doing? And Jesus says something fascinating that for a long time, I, it just went right over my head. I didn't understand what Jesus was getting at. Jesus said this, let it, be, let it be so, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, for a Jew hearing this, what this meant was to obey every single jot and tittle of the law. Now, Jesus was not acting on his own behalf when he was baptized, but he was acting on the behalf of his people. 
If his people were required to keep the Ten Commandments, Jesus kept the Ten Commandments. If if his people were, were required to go through the ritual baptism of John, Jesus went through it on their behalf. So Christ's redemptive work doesn't just mean his death on the cross for our sins, as massively important as that is, but also his perfect life of obedience in everything. God didn't just send Jesus on Good Friday and say, go die for the sins of my people. Jesus was sent as a baby and lived 33 years in perfect obedience to his father for his people, for us. And the perfect obedience of Jesus found its climax or found its apex or found its mountain summit, if you will, on the cross. Philippians 2.8 says Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, so that through faith in Christ, he becomes not only our pardon, as precious as that is, but he becomes also our perfection. He doesn't only become our forgiveness, as important as that is, we need that, but he becomes our righteousness. If Jesus, had just die, if Jesus had died for our sins and nothing more, we would be sinless in the sight of God, but we would not be righteous. So there was this double transaction that took place on the cross. Our sins were placed on the sinless one, Christ. His righteousness was placed on unrighteous people like me. John Bunyan puts it so well. He says, our sins, when laid upon Christ, were yet personally ours, not his. So his righteousness, when put upon us, is yet personally his and not ours. See, there is a way to think about justification by faith that, well, as I am becoming more and more righteous, God sees me as righteous. The gospel says that the most unrehabilitated sinner, the moment they believe in Christ, is made perfectly righteous in him. I don't know about you, but that's good news for me. (laughs) That is good news for me. This is precisely what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, when it says, he who knew no sin became sin for us, so that, namely Christ, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And when you receive this amazing gift through faith in Jesus Christ alone, how can we not respond? Like Isaiah in Isaiah 61, who says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has robed me. In righteousness. He has given me the robes of righteousness. Jesus earned this for us. We could not earn it ourselves. And we don't contribute a little bit. Jesus earned it perfectly and completely and gives it as a gift. So, this is a gift 
precious beyond measure, that we can stand before God righteous in his sight, not just innocent, our sins removed, but actually positively righteous in his sight through faith in Jesus alone. When this truth hit Europe, when it began to be announced by Martin Luther and all the other reformers, it took that continent by storm because they were living under this system, this oppressive system that you are made righteous by God when you do all that you can, and that's still probably not enough. We are righteous in God's sight through faith in the finished work of Christ alone. Now, when we receive this gift, and it really lands on us, we don't ever want to move beyond it, and we don't ever move beyond it. Here's what Paul says in our verse, Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God. To nullify means to cancel or reject or to set aside or to make void. So we write checks. I mean, we don't do that very often anymore, I suppose. But if you write void on a check, that check no longer has any monetary value. Right? You can't use that check and decide to write in an amount and send it in for a bill to pay out you know, to a utility company. Paul says, I do not void out God's grace by attempting to gain righteousness through the law. Later in the book of Galatians, Paul has incredibly strong words for those who accept circumcision, the actual operation of circumcision, as a means of acceptance with God. Here's what Paul says. He says, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. He will be of no value to you. I say again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the entire law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. Severed from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. These are very strong words. But I noticed something this week. When I, it's only one word, and it's the first word, and it's always been there. And if somebody would have pointed this out to me, I certainly would have agreed with them. But what stood out to me this week was the word I. Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God. He's not pointing to the Galatians and saying, you better not. Or don't nullify the grace of God. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. In other words, Paul says, I don't move beyond this, this gift of righteousness. This is Paul. Right? This is the Apostle Paul. This is the guy who had the Damascus Road experience. Right? This is the guy who went to the third heaven and saw unutterably glorious things. Things that he couldn't even speak about. The Apostle Paul says, I do not move beyond grace. I never move beyond grace. He never jettisoned this gift of righteousness. He never thought he moved beyond it. He consciously remained righteous in God's sight through Jesus Christ alone. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God. 
I am what I am by the grace of God. Has that gotten into you so that you can say the same thing? I am what I am by the grace of God, not my own efforts, not my gene pool, not because of my parents, none of that. I am what I am by the grace of God. Now, some smart aleck might say, yeah, but Galatians and 1 Corinthians were written earlier in Paul's ministry. Maybe later on. I mean, we, you know, in, in America, we kind of have this idea that we, we uh, and I'm not saying we don't grow, we certainly do, but there, that there are these levels of Christianity or something like that. Did, maybe Paul, maybe he jumped up a level and moved kind of beyond, I am what I am by the grace of God. Perhaps he graduated later and was able to add some of his obedient works to gain maybe like some extra credit with God or something, extra favor to get extra blessing? Well, the book of Philippians was written 10 years after Galatians, about eight years after 1 Corinthians. It's one of the last books he wrote. It's um, 80, 62, or 63. And in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says quite the opposite. Paul says this. He says, For Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish or garbage or dung in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that comes from my obedience, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The gospel of God's grace which, by which he counts us righteous in Christ is good news the first day we're saved. And it is no less good news, maybe even better news. The longer we live, the more hard knocks we go through, the more time we see ourselves and our own faults and our difficulties and our failures, <clears throat> it might even become better news as we live longer. I love what John Piper, I read a quote by Piper this last week. I love what he says here. He says, we do not respond to the gospel once and then move on. We need it every single day. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is good news for both the weary sinner and the seasoned saint. Beloved, we never move beyond grace. And this grace, the grace of being counted righteous in Christ, or this gift of righteousness. So what are some of the wonderful effects of the gracious gift of righteousness? When we believe in Christ and we are considered righteous in God's sight. And I don't just mean when we get it into our brains, but when it gets into our bloodstream, when it gets into our heart, when it gets into our very being. And this is, the stu- this is the goal of our study of Galatians. We don't want, I don't, I don't want to just pack your heads with more information. Reed doesn't either. We want, we want this to get into your heart and into your bloodstream so that it changes you from the inside out. I read this great, great quote this last week or heard it from someone. Didn't read it. I heard it. Um, Tim Keller says that revival is when those who think they know the gospel well discover that they don't fully know it. <clears throat> and when it lands on them and goes deeper into them and begins to 
flower in them and blossom in them and change them at the depth of their being. And so what are some of the reviving effects of believing this truth? We could go on all day with this, but I'm just going to give you three. First, it will make you sing. It'll make you a singer. It will. And I don't mean a good singer necessarily. You might say, I still can't carry a tune, but you'll want to sing. It made David sing. It made David sing. David wrote Psalm 32 in verses 1 and 2. It says, Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will never count his sin. Blessed is a man like that. Right? Paul, as he's explaining this truth of justification by faith in Romans 4, he quotes David and says, David knew the blessing that came to a man who's counted righteous by faith. And he quotes these two verses. This truth has made the saints sing for centuries. The old hymn, when heaven, when heaven Came Down, says this, one of the last verses. Luke added this a few years ago, and I'm very glad he did. Justified fully through Calvary's blood. Oh, what a standing is mine. Now I have a hope that will surely endure after the passing of time. The opening line of On Christ the Solid Rock says, I, I, I say this. Most mornings, I confess this to the Lord. And I have for about the last 10 years. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. The last verse, I love it. It says, and, 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 and when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone and faultless to stand before the throne. When Jude says we're going to stand before him in the presence of his glory with great joy, how could we ever do that if we are standing before him clothed in our righteousness? But if we're clothed in his, there will be great joy. Charles Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be, says, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. The hymn before the throne says, Behold him there, my risen lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness. And a contemporary song, I'll throw that in too. Matt Marr's song, Lord, I Need You, says, You're my one defense, my righteousness. When this truth gets in you, you may not be able to carry a tune, but you won't care. You'll sing. You'll sing. You'll sing to the praise of God's glorious grace. 
that you can stand before a righteous and good and holy God, even though you and I are not in ourselves righteous in his sight through Christ. Here's another effect. You will have an unshakable foundation for assurance before God. One of the one of the worst experiences in life is when, for whatever reason, maybe it's because we fall into sin or we just go through hard times to stand unsure of what God thinks of us, to stand unsure if, if we're saved or not, to, to stand unsure of what God, how God views us and what he says regarding us. When you know that you stand righteous in God's presence and before God through faith in Christ alone and not by adding anything that you bring, you have great assurance before God. Romans 8.33 asks an important question. It says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? And then it answers, it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died and rose again and is at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for us. Our crimes against God have already been charged against Jesus and paid for. Past, present, and future, all of them. So I stand before God innocent. We have been pronounced righteous Not for a moment, not until we sin big time, forever. Forever. J.I. Packer says, justification is decisive for eternity. Being, in effect, the judgment of the last day brought forward. We're going to stand before Christ someday. The judgment of the last day has been brought forward and Christ has bore the judgment of God in our place. And we stand before him justified. Here's another powerful effect. We now, you and I, have access to this righteous and holy God. We have access to him. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. No climbing a ladder. We've been brought to God. We have been brought to God, the righteous one. Jesus Christ took the place of the unrighteous one, me, to bring me to God, taking away my sin and giving me righteousness. We have been brought near to God through Christ. We have been brought near to God through Christ. And now, because we've been brought near, we can freely come through Christ. We have a high priest, it says in Hebrews 4, that because of his perfect high priestly work where he died for us, and rose for us and is at the right hand of the Father for us, we can draw near to God 
with confidence. This thought came to me a long time ago, and every once in a while it would come to my mind again, and I'd probably even say it. You maybe have heard me say it. We have access to go to a place that on our own we have no business going. We would be incinerated. We'd be, it'd be like plopping somebody on the sun. And yet, because of Christ, we sang it earlier, we know our Father as a good, good, gracious, loving, inviting, welcoming. His massive heart is open to us. We know him this way through Christ and through Christ alone. What more can be said? I mean, this, this gift is precious beyond measure. So let me ask you a question. <clears throat> In light of the gospel, are you righteous? I'm going to ask you to say it out loud. In light of the gospel, are you righteous? We have become the righteousness of God in Christ. Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God because if righteousness can can come through the law or through our efforts and our attainments, Jesus died for no purpose. Let's not say that. Let's not cancel out the grace of God. Let's not nullify it. Let's not say, yeah, but... There's some really bad people out there. Yeah, I know. I used to be one of them. Sometimes I still think I am. Right? We are made right with God through Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this wonderful truth. I thank you, Father. that when you shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may every single one of us who have heard this message today then be found in you, dressed in your righteousness alone and stand faultless before the presence of your glory with great joy. Father, I pray that we would not nullify the grace, your grace, by pretending or just by living in a way that thinks we can earn your favor by our good behavior. We cannot. It must be given to us by grace. And so we thank you for that gift of grace this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can stay seated, please. We're going to... We're going to uh, celebrate Lord's Supper this morning. Um, I want to take just a bit of time this morning to give you moments of silence before God to consider the things that have been talked about this morning. And I want to, I want to think about perhaps the, the greatest of the redemptive works of Christ or the greatest of all that Christ has done for us is that he has brought us home to God. When I think of the Lord's Supper, um, I think of this incredibly intimate, special event. And, it may, you know, Christ sat around a table with his disciples, right, when he instituted this 
this ordinance that we follow and that we do. Um, And he sat around the table and he looked his disciples in the eyes and he took bread and he broke it. He says, this is my body broken for you. And he, he took a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the remission of your sins. It is as though this morning Jesus invites us to sit around a table with him. Sit around a table with him and remember his forgiving and justifying work to bring us to himself and to bring us to the Father. For though Christ is not here physically among us, and he's not, Jesus has promised, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Jesus said it was actually better for him to go away so that his spirit could be given to be in us and with us. And so Jesus is most certainly present here today by his spirit. And so in just a few moments, I'm going to have the men come forward. They're going to start passing the elements out. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I invite you to take Lord's Supper with us this morning. As the elements are passed out, just take a few moments to draw near to the Lord, drawing near to Jesus based on his finished work on your behalf with gratitude that his body was broken and his blood was poured out to take away all of your sin and to make you righteous in God's sight. Men, why don't you come forward? When you, when you get the bread and juice, keep it and we'll take it together in just a few moments.